From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is Brexit. Will the UK make good on its promise to leave the European Union? I'm joined by Tufts business professor, Dr. Amar Bidet, and Dr. Simon Usherwood of the UK in a changing world. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. It's been nearly three years since the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. As the UK gets closer to a day of reckoning, there are more questions than answers. Questions abound from Prime Minister Theresa May's qualifications to lead to what exactly would leaving the EU look like. Joining me today is Dr. Mar Bidet. Dr. Bidet is a business professor at Tufts University. Dr. Simon Usherwood will join me later in the broadcast. Dr. Mar Bidet, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here, as it were. When when I think of how Brexit was sold, you know, I I think of that old axiom that was that was popularized or attributed to at least by H. L. Mencken, when says, "For every complex problem, there is a solution that's clear, simple, and wrong." Now that we've had a Brexit vote, uh, and now we're trying to make sense of it, where are we in that process, and how close are we to H. L. Mencken? Uh. Can we go back a little bit to the history of... Uh, Please. Of, 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 of. So, in the first instance, getting the UK into the common market was was a trial. And it was a trial because the French did not want the UK in it. And uh, de Gaulle actually uh, vetoed Britain's application. So, so it, it, it was the UK in the first instance that agitated to be let into the uh, in, into the common market. Now, the common market was a very different creature at the time. Uh, it was mainly Western. It was entirely Western Europe. Uh, it had uh, not integrated to the degree that 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 it had integrated now. Nobody had imagined that the uh, the, the, the Soviet Union would collapse and or, or, or all these East European com- countries would be let in. So it, it was a very different world. And interestingly, it was a Tory prime minister, conservative prime minister, Edward Heath, uh, who pushed uh, the UK into uh, in, in, into the European Union, negotiated a deal. And I think it was what may have been one of the first times that a referendum was used in the British parliamentary democracy to get popular endorsement of, 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 the, of the UK entry. Uh, and that was in ni- 1974. And then the world changed fairly dramatically. And, uh, uh, it, it changed in every dimension possible. The world financialized. Uh, income distributions changed uh, hugely. Uh, Britain became hugely more prosperous uh it's but at the same time uh 
its uh, manufacturing base continued continued to erode. Nationalism arose in 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 Scotland. So everything was different from the time that uh, that 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 the UK had voted. Or the British people had voted, not by a huge majority, but by a fairly strong majority, to get in, and 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 it's it's the easiest thing in the world. Uh, and when things change, there is the winners and losers. There's discontent. There are people who are happy about the way things have changed, uh, but the people's happiness with the way things have changed is usually swamped by the intensity of the unhappiness of the people who have lost. This is true all over the world. There is no progress. There is there's no time in history when material well-being improved without some people being worse off and without the people being worse off being intensely unhappy about what had happened to them. Uh, and these are not necessarily poor people. In the UK, I suspect it was a lot of uh, how shall we call them, tops, people who went to Oxford and Cambridge and public schools who somehow thought that their place in the world had been undercut by this world changing around them. And there was basically an intramural fight uh, within the Conservative Party, people who had this this mad belief that there was a golden age at uh, at some point in the past, and the principal thing that had gone wrong with this golden age was uh, integration with Europe, that Britain had lost its sovereignty, uh, when what they really meant was that they had lost their privileges in power. And it was, you can call it extremely short-sighted, as, 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 as many people now do, or you can say it, it might have been an act of great statesmanship by David Cameron, the, uh, the the previous prime minister, to try to say, let's settle what is principally an intra-Tory party dispute. And let, let's settle it once and for all uh, uh, by calling for a referendum. That, that referendum will, uh, will, will solidify my position within the Conservative Party. It will... Uh, it, 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 it'll flush out the, the, the people who want to, 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 to leave Europe. I'll give them what, what they want. And he gambled and lost. Uh, well, he, he, he first won. He won because he got a an, an really large, unexpected majority in parliament. But where he lost was, that, uh, was in the referendum. And it, it's, it's my, I mean, I've, I've heard endless analyses of this and people have done tons of uh, econometric analyses and they've looked at constituencies and and, and, uh, 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 and I, I don't think there's a clear reason for why they lost it could be something as simple as young people didn't bother to vote up, uh, to show up but I, 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 I think it, it's really fair to say that there was a deep unhappiness with the establishment and this was one way of expressing that that unha unhappiness. Though ironically, the people who were leaders of uh, of the Brexit movement are all tops themselves. This is not a uh, a grassroots people's movement by any means. I mean, most of these people have been to public schools. They've been to Oxford and Cambridge. They speak in posh accents, 
And ironically, it was the, uh, they were able to harness the unhappiness of people who are not like them. But uh, I mean, it, 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 it's a little bit like what you see in this country. I mean, Donald Trump is a billionaire. He went to Wharton. Uh, but but that's not his base. I mean, his base is a people in the hinterlands, and and they they voted for it. the The referendum was, in retrospect, very poorly voted, because all it said was it it didn't specify what the margin would have to be. It said it was a non-binding vote. Uh, but it, 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 it didn't. It, it's one thing to say we want out. It, it, the referendum did, did not at all specify the terms or the timing under which uh, 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 they, they wanted out. And the belief was that Britain has a long tradition of being a parliamentary democracy uh, with highly concentrated powers, much more concentrated in the United States in the sense that the prime minister is both the, both the head of the executive and the head of parliament. Parliament is sovereign. Uh, it, it, it can do more or less, the House of Commons can do more or less what it pleases. So even if a party has a majority of one in parliament, uh, dramatic changes can be can, can be pushed through. And again, in, in, in another act of, of, of in, uh, in retrospect, mad miscalculation, Mrs. May called for a snap general election. She already had a majority in parliament. She thought she could expand this majority. Uh, amazingly, she lost. I mean, again, this may have been in part that people had come to their senses. It could be that she's a terrible campaigner. And now she, she's stuck with a minority government uh, with and a highly inept government. There, 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 there is no, uh, uh, there, there's no denying that this was not a, this was not a part, this was not a party or a government that had any, any foresight about what they were doing. So they prematurely triggered what is known as Article 50, which, uh, which serves the, the European Union two years of notice that they're going to leave. But with no idea of, of the terms and conditions, they negotiated endlessly. They eventually came up with, uh, with a 500-page document, which, in spite of its great length, was fundamentally a fudge because it, 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 it said what would happen now in terms of getting out now for, for, for the next two years. It left completely unspecified what would happen two years from now or, or when this quote-unquote transitional period uh, was over. And, and this opened the doors to all kinds of uh, people coming out of the woodwork, people who wanted to have nothing more to do with the European Union, the so-called hard Brexit as the people who said, well, you know, the, uh, the hard Brexit is not what, quote-unquote, the people voted for. And uh, if it had been, if Mrs. May had still had her parliamentary majority, we would not be here, but she threw that away. Uh, and we are in, in, a, in a stalemate. Uh, the 
Europeans have been remarkably united on this. I mean, I, I, I would have always thought that a government negotiating against 27 would be much more capable of uh, putting up a united front and, and, and a united negotiating position. This has not been the case in, 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 in the least. The Europeans have been... Uh, have had have spoken with one voice, and they seem to have uh, they they seem to have come around to the point of view that if if the British want to leave, so be it. the The, the only problem for the Europeans really uh, is the Irish border, and uh, maybe they will throw. Ireland off the bus. I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, the, the Irish are caught between a hard and a rock place. And and again, no one had anticipated this. Uh, it uh, there's a five-year, there's a five-hour cabinet meeting today, and the cabinet is is deeply split between people who say, "Let's go, let's go now. Let we don't care under what terms we'll we." We'll figure that out, and and the other half of the cabinet, which says that this is a disaster, and we'll see where the cabinet comes out today. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking down, and what and what I I think makes the clock ticking down really serious is the fact that the that the Europeans are willing to let them go. If, we, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Amar Bidet, uh, business professor at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And, and Dr. Bidet, just on that wonderful um, analysis of how we got to this point, part of the argument, as I recall, was that uh, of the, the Brexit argument, was that people did not want it to be governed uh, by the uh, those in Brussels, did that have legitimacy in uh, in the run up to this election? Uh, it, 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 it was it, it was a rhetorical argument. I can't believe that there are too many British voters to whom uh, th- this argument would appeal in any sort of concrete sense, except from an emotional point of view. That uh, we have we have lost we have become disempowered. It's it's not a very different argument from it, 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 at some basic level between the argument that the founding fathers had in this country when they argued about how much power would devolve to the federal government and how much power would remain in in, in the thirteen states. And uh, it, it took a long time to sort that out. I mean, as, as, as you know, I mean, that, 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 that was uh, much of the debate over the U.S. Constitution was, was about that issue, which is how much quote-unquote sovereignty would the states have, how much of it would, would go to the uh, uh, would, would go to the federal government. There were uh, there were all kinds of unfortunate compromises which were made because of the slave states and the non-slave states. And uh, but 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 the interesting thing is that in this country, in in, in 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 the United States, that division of power which had been sorted out 
uh, at, at the outset has changed dramatically over the last 200 years, uh, in, in some ways for the good and, and in some ways for the bad. I mean, on, on the good side, we, we can thank the expansion of federal powers for the end of slavery. Uh, in, in other ways, uh, there are many people who believe that the, that the federal government has vastly overstepped its, its, its powers. Uh, but yet, nobody says the, the federal government has overstepped its powers to the degree that we want to secede. I mean, that, 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 that argument ended, albeit with a, with a brutal civil war, but that argument ended a long time ago. And, and, and part of the reason why nobody has this argument any, anymore is that we have tons of checks and balances. So, so we do not have the capacity, thank God, for really dramatic changes in, uh, in, in the way we govern ourselves and in, in the way we distribute power between the states and, uh, and the federal government. I mean, imagine if the House of Representatives could wake up one day and, and, and make a dramatic change in our, in our arrangements. It would, it would be a disaster. And that, that, that is one of the fundamental weaknesses of... Uh, of the of the British system is that power is in, is ex, extraordinarily concentrated within 500 people, and you know, as we all know, 500 representatives, whether in this country or any any other country, are not the most sensible people in uh, in, in that society. Well, if, I may, uh, if I may, sir, um, I want to talk about a little bit about the, the EU for just a moment. Mm-hmm. When you think about, um, uh, as you said, the, the, you said earlier, the EU is in, in, in largely in one voice saying if Britain wants to go, then, then go. Um, mm-hmm. Where is the E with all of this going on, where is the EU vis-a-vis um, the debt crisis in Greece? Does, does that play a role in the, in, in the um, European, um, the, the Brexit decision, rather? So uh, this is one of the issues with the organization of Europe, that that there are multiple governance structures dealing with different uh, different rules and different institutional arrangements, which kind of sit in Europe but are independent from Europe. So, for instance, uh, there's the European Monetary Union, and there are members of... uh, Members of the EU, uh, and to, to this day, still the United Kingdom and Sweden, which are not part of the uh, of, 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 of the common currency, and the common currency sort of imposes its own dynamic and its its own problems. It, it has its own advantages and, and disadvantages. But uh, the, the European Union preceded this monetary union. And I, and I think of Greece as being principally a, pro, a, a problem that has arisen because of a common currency, not because of, of, of a common market. Another interesting overlay, uh, the freedom of, uh, of uh, a, a common immigration policy. There's a thing called the Schengen Treaty, which allows completely free movement within members of uh, between those members of the European Union who signed up to the Schengen Treaty. Uh, 
the United Kingdom did not sign up to uh, for the Schengen Treaty. Therefore, there are uh, there are immigration controls between uh, between the uh, between Europe for non-EU members going in in and out of the UK. So there are there are a variety of other. There's the Court of Justice, which uh, which a lot of people made a hue and cry about, which pretty much has again preceded the European Union, but it, 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 it was also something that a big fuss was made about, which is we are ceding our our justice system to, to Europe, which, which was which was blatant nonsense. So, uh, the, the Europe has far more severe problems than whether uh, the UK stays in or out. I mean, it will not be a good thing for uh, economically speaking for the European Union if Britain leaves. But I, 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 I think the problems of integrating its East European members and sorting out its, its currency arrangements are far more severe than the problem of whether Britain stays in or, or, or not. And... and the, uh, the the question is: Are these problems made less acute by Britain staying in or, or Britain staying out? Well, that that actually leads me to my next question. I mean, is it is part of the rub here that not only facing the EU but also every developed nation um, that Brexit cannot address is that it it really is impossible to have total democracy, however that's defined, national sovereignty. And expect completely integrated markets. You just can't have all three. Is that would that be fair? Well, I mean, you, you, you're talking about absolutes, uh, and democracy comes in a in a very large variety of flavors. Uh, I I think I would say it is generally true that it is difficult to imagine a democracy. Or, or, or even any broad association of democratic arrangements uh, that span a large territorial expanse and span uh, large, large cultural differences that is centralized. And the, uh, we, as far as a common market is concerned. Again, it's 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 a slogan. I mean, does the United States have a common market in, in certain respects? Absolutely. In certain respects, not so much. I mean, there are uh, uh, there are insurance regulators that uh, that govern insurance in in individual states. There are banking regulators that govern banking in individual states. Interstate banking was prohibited until not so long ago. So in all these three three things that you mentioned, or at least two of the three things that you mentioned, democracy and uh, and the common market, uh, you, there are no absolutes. And... To, to set up some kind of opposition between absolutes which cannot exist is is not uh, it, it, to my mind does not really promote understanding. I mean, it, it, it uh, 
it 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 it, it makes for dramatic statements. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, I mean people love talking about trilemmas or dilemmas, and, and, and that's fine if you're an academic or if you are a rhetorician. But the the, the reality is that the, that the world is uh, is amazingly complex and diverse, and, and it should be so. Well, how might or does uh, the Brexit decision impact NATO at all, or potentially? Uh, I think not very much. And I, I think one of the reasons for not very much is that that the governance of NATO largely lies outside uh democratic institutions or elected institutions. So uh, politicians can vote to be in in NATO or not NATO. And for better or for worse, a lot of what happens within NATO is is undertaken by professionals within the deep state. And these professionals constitute a community of, of, of largely military officials who speak each other's language, who understand each other's problems and in the end will influence each other's each other's uh, each other's policies the the, the, much, the the much bigger problem for nato is the one which uh, which donald trump has raised which is to what degree does the united states uh, continue to pay for the enterprise and uh, should uh, sh- should europe uh, and, and, and we're principally now talking about Germany, really, because the other countries can't afford very much. Uh, should they be responsible for more of their own, uh, uh, m- more of their own security spending? And, and if they do, are we, as uh, as Americans, willing to live with some the degree of remilitarization of Germany that would that would bring about? And are we willing? to cede what is de facto leadership of the Western military alliance. And because if the Germans pay more, then they will, uh, they will demand a larger voice. But I don't think this has anything to do really with, uh, uh, with, with NATO. Yeah. Do you uh, – we're going to give um, Dr. Day the crown as king for the day. And um, he's going to tell us, if he were king, how, how, how uh, he would uh, alleviate this, the, the problem that faces Britain right now vis-a-vis Brexit. So the specific problem vis-a-vis Brexit is the, the, the answer is staring at us in the face. And, and I simply don't, I mean, I think it was Napoleon who said, there's never attribute to malice that which can be easily explained by stupidity. So the... The, 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 the simplest motion before Parliament, which should get uh, support from both Labour and uh, and the Tory Party, and and, and the, 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 this is something which only Mrs. May can do. Is she she can propose a motion which says uh, Parliament resolves that uh, it supports the agreement that I have reached, conditional on its ratification in a second referendum 
in which hard Brexit and Remain are also offered as options. And I, I, I think such a... Uh, it would be very hard at this point for uh, Labour to reject it. It would be... Uh, the, the diehard Brexiteers might reject it. And I think if this were done, her, 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 her withdrawal agreement, sort of flawed as it is, would probably win in the referendum because people are tired of it. It would give them some, uh, some resolution. And then we could throw it all back to the bureaucrats and they would uh, negotiate endlessly for the next five or ten years. And muddling on, which is an old British tradition, would save the day. Back in January of this year, you stated to Vox, either May is, is as clever as a fox and, and she's basically going to play this out until March 29th, or she really is as dumb as British leaders have been for 100 years. Um, hundreds of years. Hundreds <laughs> of years. I'm sorry. Hundreds of right. years. Uh, I'm guessing, uh, since you remember the quote very well, sir, I'm guessing you're sort of leaning ever so slightly to the latter consideration there. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> and it, 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 it is the problem of politicians living in a bubble, and uh, uh, which reinforced their stupidity, because they just, they just talk to each other. Uh, and yes. So it, 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 it would take a miracle uh to choose the solution which is staring at us in the face, which is the one which, which I just described. Finally, how much of this, in, in, in your opinion, your worldview, is driven by the browning uh, of the UK, becoming more brown in its demographics? Oh, uh, a, a ton of it, I think. And, uh, and uh, the, the, so... The uh, and it's not just that it's Browning. These Browns are getting uppity. They are getting elected mayors of uh, of London. Big they cities, are, yeah. Oh, 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 they're, they're home secretaries now. And as as long as they were just bus conductors and cleaning toilets, or perhaps minding their place in in the National Health Service, it was fine. But uh, they're now become they're, they're now becoming rich. And dare I say it, the, the old white establishment resents it. They, they'll ne- they will never accept this even to themselves. But I, I, I think this is a lot to, to, uh, to do with it. So they're not really uh, – so they claim, oh, we can re- uh, seize control of our borders, we'll keep the poles out. But it's not really the, the poles that they're worried about because the poles are, after all, European and, uh, and they're white. It, it, is, it is a fact that uh, uh, the quote-unquote colored people are, uh, are, are now becoming such a big deal. Dr. Marbide, Tufts University, thank you, sir, for lending your voice this morning to the public morality. Uh, great pleasure.
Welcome back. To continue our conversation, I'm now joined from across the pond via Skype by Dr. Simon Usherwood. Dr. Usherwood is Deputy Director at UK in a Changing Europe. Dr. Simon Usherwood, welcome to the Public Morality. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're past the March 29 deadline. Where do the UK and the EU currently stand vis-a-vis Brexit? Well, that's one of the great uh, uncertainties of modern political life in this country. The UK is still a member state of the EU, uh, but uh, it's trying to stop being a member state. And right now, it's, it's not entirely sure how it's going to go about that. So uh, at the moment, we've got a parliament that... Uh, can't uh, find a majority for any course of action. We've got a a government that seems to be losing control over uh, its MPs and over its program of uh, government. And uh, we've got a a clock that's ticking. We now have a new deadline for the UK to leave, which is the 12th of April. So not very long. And uh, if there isn't some uh, alternative arrangement, the UK is going to leave the EU without a deal which is one of the few things that uh, most politicians in this country uh, accept is uh, a bad thing to happen. Now, you wrote um, several weeks ago a piece entitled Theresa May's Failure to Lead. Given what Brexit promised, the actual outcome, the close vote, could anyone effectively lead under those conditions? I, I think that's... I think that's a really good question. Uh, It's something that uh, often comes up in debate. And to be frank, I think anybody would have struggled in the situation. Uh, It's uh, it's a very invidious position to be in to try and uh, work through what was a very divisive referendum, uh, which by definition splits the country in two. Um, And uh, yeah, I think Theresa May has not done uh, a great job, but I I actually do struggle to think of anyone who would have done anything better. But having said that, I think she has made a a number of choices during her time as uh, Prime Minister that have made life more difficult rather than uh, more manageable. Elaborate on those if you would, sir. Yeah, I think think for me the, the, the main thing is that she's treated this more as a matter of party politics rather than as an issue of the situation of the country as a whole. Uh, So she uh, took uh, a very uh, hard line on what kind of uh, Brexit there should be, so one that would be relatively distant from the EU, which meant being outside of the main economic elements, the single market and the customs union. And as a result, uh, that pushed her towards... uh, the, the harder elements of her own party, the Conservatives. And it meant that it was really hard for her to generate uh, a cross-party consensus, that, that kind of broad coalition that might have been more useful in recent months when it's come to approving this deal, especially because of the second issue, which is that her style of, of making decisions is very much she will make a decision by herself. She'll, she'll consider the uh, various options, weigh them up and then decide and then tell people that that's what she's decided and she would like everyone to agree with her uh, rather than a, a much more inclusive uh, style where she, she tries to bring people along with her in that decision-making process so that everyone's got a shared point of reference. 
um, which is, uh, I think, a more durable way of doing things, albeit one that means you have to open yourself up to compromise more. And one of the things we're seeing is that Theresa May is not uh, a great one for compromising her position. Her, her whole political career has really been characterized by taking a, a stance and then defending it until she absolutely positively has no alternative but to change her mind, uh, which she then does with uh, not particularly good grace. Uh, and uh, she moves to a new fallback position, which again she will defend until uh, her very last breath. Well, that, that sounds um, uh, like the UK in general right now. I guess for those of us living in the United States, it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing vis-a-vis -vis Brexit. Um, in fact, um, the only thing in America that I can equate Brexit to, just to the process of Brexit, is the initiative process in California. You had a 51-49 vote um, that seems an incredibly low bar for what was being asked in order to tout the people decided. I, I wonder how you saw that process. Is, is there any hope of pulling that back or changing that? Uh, well, the short answer is, uh, yeah, there's always a chance, but uh, the longer answer is there's hardly any chance uh, of it. Um, the rules of politics in this country are opaque uh, and flexible, and one of the real challenges for the UK has been that we don't really hold referendums. It's not a thing that we do. Uh, the, the vote back in 2016 was only the second time, uh, the third time, sorry, that there had been a nationwide vote ever in the UK. So we, we don't really have the, the practice of it. And you, you talk about the closeness of the result. Uh, it was a 52-48 split. My apologies. Still, yes. you know, really, really very tight. Uh, and there was talk at the time, you know, shouldn't we have some kind of uh, supermajority, minimum turnout uh, requirements, things like that. And uh, MPs uh, in Parliament who were setting the rules said basically, no, you can't do that because that won't be fair because that's not how we do our other elections. And it just looks like you're trying to rig the system so that uh, the Remain side uh, would win. Now, I can understand uh, that logic and certainly it helped them in the longer term. But, yeah, in a system like the UK, which is very much... Uh, a winner-takes-all system, and you know you've got uh, many elements of that in the U.S. as well. Uh, that's the the logic, you know. If you win, you win, and uh, you're not under any great uh, compulsion to take account of the views of the minority. Now, in normal day-to-day uh, -day politics, you can you've got mechanisms for dealing with that. You have periodic uh, elections that come round. People get up, uh, put up. Uh, against uh, the public for the public vote uh, regularly so you can keep people in control. But you don't have that in a referendum. You have uh, a decision that is just there and it sits there and there's no requirement to, to double check or to uh, go back and make sure. So when we're talking about you know possibilities of another referendum, it actually becomes much more a matter of political calculation. Who would it serve to hold... Uh, another vote. And at this stage, there's not many people who are in Parliament and politics who would benefit from that. The government doesn't want to reopen uh, the whole affair. Uh, the opposition Labour Party uh, have a problem that they're not entirely sure what they're for or indeed against, uh, other than against the government. Mm -hmm. And for most MPs, frankly, there's a concern that if they go back to uh, 
population, then uh, it looks like they failed in their jobs. Uh, and to a certain extent, they would have failed in their jobs. They'd be given a referendum result, told to get the UK out, and then they're saying, well, we're not sure, we need to ask you some more questions, we need to get your opinion. So all of it, I think, really points to a second referendum at this stage still looking like an outside possibility, notwithstanding the fact that our government and parliament right now don't seem to be able to make any decision. One of the things, and I go from my experience in California with the initiative process, one of the things that referendums in direct democracy in general fail to account for are the unintended consequences. And, And I think this is an unintended consequence on a massive scale when you think about the promises made and what and what's actual in reality it, it seems like a big gap so i'm wondering you know where are the people now now that they decided to to leave the european union where where are the people now do they still want to leave or do you still have that ma- majority where are you well uh i think a, a number of points so firstly there's this uh, very ambiguous position of the people in, in British politics, uh, unlike the U.S. Uh, and indeed pretty much every country. Oh, it's, the it's ambiguous in the U.S. too, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, no but, but you know, in the U.S., sovereignty ultimately lies with the people. The people are uh, the sovereign body. They make yes. the ultimate decisions. The, the government is the servant of the people. Now, the U.K. has this... Uh, I'm going to use the word quaint uh, because we're talking about the UK, uh, but it is quaint. This quaint notion of parliamentary sovereignty, that parliament is the ultimate deciding body. And uh, this referendum uh, under this uh, constitutional arrangement only ever can be advisory. It's not legally binding on parliament. So uh, clearly in political terms, uh, it has been treated as binding. But people always have this uh, uncertain position in in the UK that uh, MPs largely can do what they like. Yes, they have to suffer the consequences uh, at the ballot box, but uh, people, again, I think largely feel a degree of frustration with the process that uh, they see MPs who are messing about with trying to save their own backs or blame other people or get out of what they've been told to do in uh, a public vote. And there's a very high level of dissatisfaction with the way the UK and indeed the EU have handled this entire process. But if you look at underlying attitudes, actually, most people are where they were in 2016, which is to say pretty much 50-50 down the middle. So if you uh, look at the public opinion poll asking the same question that was asked in uh, the referendum, whether you want to remain or leave the EU, um, You've seen a drift towards Remain, but that's mainly because people who didn't vote uh, back then, uh, when you know they've increasingly kind of reached some uh, decisions about what they like, and they break more towards the Remain side. So, you know, we hear people talking about uh, uh, regret over their votes, but actually, there's not a huge amount of that. Most people have pretty strong and stable identities as Leavers and Remainers to the point that. Actually, we now see in public opinion that more people identify as a Lever or a Remainer than they do as uh, a member or a, a supporter of a, any political party. So if you can imagine in the U.S. equivalent, you know, more people identifying as something else other than uh, Democrat or Republican. So, again, it's, it's been something which has very profound effects in uh, public opinion, public debate. 
um, but not ones which really lend themselves to uh, a, a clear resolution of the problem. So, you know, when we talk about a, a referendum as, as a solution for, for this current uh, blockage, uh, we may well find that actually people still aren't really sure. Uh, they're rather ambivalent about the different options, uh, not least because of the lack of clear steers from politicians. I, I couldn't um, uh, resist. Um, you work at uh, the UK in a changing Europe. Yeah. And I'm wondering, sort of uh, in a subliminal way, is that what's undergirding the Brexit move? Because the UK is changing. Um, the demographics are changing. I mean, we're having the same problem here in America. And I wonder, is, that, is, it, is it that change is sort of undergirding the move to leave the European Union? I think that's part of it. I and mean, it's clear that, you know, we live in dynamic societies, that, you know, there's a lot of uh, social change going on. Uh, people's uh, attitudes uh, drift over time. I think, you know, part of it is about the decline in trust. And, you know, that's certainly an issue in the U.S. as it is in the U.K. and around the world, that people don't really trust uh, politicians, elites, uh, commentators, academics. Uh, Media. You know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, all of us, you know, we're, we're all part of them rather than us. And, you know, that's... In one level, it's healthy to maintain a degree of skepticism about people who are telling you what to do or trying to make decisions for you. But at some point, it, it does make it very hard to get out of uh, these kinds of situations because uh, who do you look to to, to give you uh, support or information or leadership? And so I think there is, a, you know, there is an argument that this is part of a, a broader process. Um, it's clear that the, the EU is also a, a, a dynamic, changing organization. The last decade has been particularly unkind to uh, the EU. We had the uh, financial crisis. We've had a long period of austerity politics. We've had the uh, challenges of migration uh, across the continent. We've had the destabilization of the international system. Russia is much more of a... Uh, player than it was before. We've got the rise of China as an economic power. We've got the uncertainty about the, the transatlantic relationship as well. So all of these things, I think, feed into, into that uh, picture. And yeah, for a lot of people, they're, they're kind of dissatisfaction, their disconnection from society uh, and its uh, changes is, is an important part of it. One of the, the concepts that really came through with the referendum was this idea of the left behinds, people who hadn't been brought along by uh, economic modernization, globalization, who uh, were suffering uh, in uh, this uh, new environment. They didn't really feel that there was anyone who was speaking for them. And so Brexit becomes an opportunity, a referendum becomes an opportunity to express all of that. So this great slogan that the Leave campaign had, which was take back control, uh, was was really powerful because, you know, it spoke to all of those discontents, all of those uh, feelings in a way that allowed people to, to jump on board with that. Now, uh, you know, I think one of the, the really uh, unfortunate things about this is that the UK hasn't not demonstrated 
post-referendum any ability to try and uh, heal uh, those those divisions, heal those uh, uh, gaps in society, and if anything, it's probably reinforced them. You know, we have a very divisive uh, debate, one that is really unconducive to any one side compromising in their views because all they see is uh, everyone else in a weak position. And uh, as a result, we we kind of have lots of people waiting for other people to sort it out. Uh, and in the end, we end up with nobody uh, actually taking that lead, which I think ultimately uh, leads to a, a deepening of these problems. And I think it, it really sets us up for a kind of a generational process of trying to work through all of the uh, issues and the uh, consequences that uh, that have uh, arisen from this. Mm. Dr. Simon Usherwood, um, the UK in a changing world. Thank you, sir, uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. It's been an absolute pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh,